Uh... Oh, I'm cutting that out for sure, but that was a great answer. <laughs> Devin. Tyler. <laughs> tell me a story about something that happened while you were away in Atlanta at the unconference. Ah, uh, yes. My time away from my infant <laughs> breastfeeding, uh, pumping in the bathroom. Oh, no, that wasn't my favorite part. Um, let's see, something fun that happened while we were in Atlanta. <laughs> me not, not me sequestered in the bathroom pumping four times a day. Uh, oh, I have another story. Another thing I remember. Um, so, and you'll, you'll remember since you were there too. Uh, so I made us matching t-shirts Yes. and <laughs> uh, bioethics for the people t-shirts. They're amazing. Lots of people have been asking me for them. So if you think you might want one, head over to our website, bioethicsforthepeople.com. Let us know you want them. I'll start ordering some. I'm not sure we have yeah. enough people who or, you know, merch, mer but merch, maybe we should start merch anyway. Yeah. So I made us these fabulous t-shirts. Uh, I gave one to you on the last day of the unconference. We wore them together like total nerds, um, <laughs> total amazing nerds, amazing podcast hosts. Yeah. And, uh, and we asked the hotel concierge to take a picture of us, of course, because we were wearing matching t-shirts and we're totally awesome. And we needed to capture that moment. And uh, I remember you had made a joke like, hey, can you try to make me look less bald? And uh, she was like, uh, okay, that's a weird thing. <laughs> like you were joking. She, I don't know that she yeah. thought it was funny. So she was very uncomfortable. Um, yeah. So congrats on that. But <laughs> Yeah, that, that may have not been the first time I've used that joke ah, in that situation. It's a total dead joke. <laughs> so, so you say that and we're all like, ha ha. And then she takes like 10 pictures and she gives me my phone back and I'm, I'm scrolling through the pictures and in every single one of them, she cut off the top of your head. <laughs> uh, and at first I true. was like, oh, is she not very good at this? And then I thought, oh no. And I think maybe you said it. She took your uh, request to heart and just just cropped it right at the top of your head <laughs> as if then no one would know you were bald, which was just yeah. one of the most hilarious things that she could have done. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. Every picture is cut off like right at my eyebrow line, <laughs> which I means she followed instructions. And so kudos to her. Uh, that was, of course, not my favorite part of being in Atlanta. My favorite part was, of course, being at the unconference. That was just a, a funny thing that happened to have happened when we were there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, that was kind of as we were saying goodbye at the hotel and you had to go catch your flight. I had a couple more hours before my flight. And so I proudly wore my bioethics for the people t-shirt walking around Atlanta. And so I walked over to the Olympic Park and where the Coke headquarters are. And I had at least three people stop me or at least make a verbal comment. Oh, bioethics as I was walking by. So is that true? Are you just making that up true. for the podcast? <laughs> No, I'm not just, I make up a lot of things for the podcast, but that actually happened. Huh. Yeah, there were a number of people who were like, huh, bioethics. And I wasn't in the mood to engage. And so I wasn't like, oh, you should check out our podcast. I was what? Like, yeah. What a total missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. so, so of course, besides these just incredible experiences we had in Atlanta, we got to attend the unconference. This three-part series, of course, is talking all about that. So in this episode, we're going to be talking to a number of clinical ethicists. 
And the unconference is exclusively, I guess not exclusively, but specifically intended to talk about clinical ethics, which as we've talked about in other episodes is a kind of a sub field of broader bioethics where people are actually doing in the hospital consultations with families and physicians and healthcare providers of all of all sorts. Uh, it's, a, it's a unique set of skills. The people who do it are generally come from a variety of different backgrounds. So it's always interesting to ask people who are in this area doing this kind of work, what they think uh, is cool about their job. Like, why do they like to do it? And also what makes somebody a good clinical ethicist? So mm -hmm. Devin, what is a good clinical Ooh, ethicist? A good clinical ethicist. That's a great question. So we, of course, heard lots of people answer this. I'll, I'll try to bracket what they said. I'll try to forget what they said so it doesn't influence too much what I think, because I think most of our participants had better answers than I'm about to give. I think you need to be really practically minded. So you can't be a person who is really good at seeing all sides of an issue, but not really good at like saying which of those sides is probably the best one, right? So a lot of philosophical or theological bioethicists think really sort of abstract thoughts, but if you force them to make a decision, like you have, no, you have to make a decision. They might struggle with that. So I think you need to be decisive, but you also need to be able to see multiple perspectives. You need to be really good at communicating. So you need to be able to talk confidently with physicians and nurses and social workers and you need to be empathetic in your communication with families and with patients. So that, that I think, is a unique skill set. Not everybody is good at talking to all of those populations um, and really getting at the questions that are going to be most important. I've sat in a lot of ethics meetings where it's like, tell me about yourself. Oh, yeah. Why? You know, and it, it doesn't actually go anywhere. So you have to, like, know what you're going to ask. You're going to have to get the, the kinds of answers that you need from people, but in a really sensitive way. Um, and then you have to be a good mediator of conflicting parties. So a lot of times we're called as clinical ethicists because there is a dispute either between healthcare providers or between the healthcare team and the patients or their family. And not to say they're always like screaming at each other, although sometimes they are usually not. Usually it's more like they're just not seeing eye to eye. And so you have to kind of sit in the middle of that and hold a meeting where everyone's voices are being heard and you can talk amongst that disagreement and hopefully come to a consensus about what should be done. That's a really difficult thing to pull off. And I think it involves a lot of skills that most folks don't have. So I want to hear from some other folks about what they think makes a good clinical ethicist. Some folks who maybe have some experience that we don't have, and hopefully they can sh shed some more light on the issue. And luckily, we were at the unconference able to record the thoughts of a wide variety of people from institutions across the country. And they were really thoughtful and really articulate and shed a lot of light on not only what makes a good clinical ethicist, but also what they enjoy about their job, because there is a lot of heaviness and darkness and, and emotions, but there's also a lot of joy and a lot of good things that make people enjoy the work that we do. Gidry Grimes, and I'm a staff ethicist at Cleveland Clinic. Alia Eves, and I'm with Quest Diagnostics. Parker Crutchfield, Western Michigan University School of Medicine. 
I'm Beckett Grimels. I am the System Vice President for Theology and Ethics at Common Spirit Health. Uh, so my name is Holland Kaplan. I'm a Clinical Ethics Fellow at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Hey, I'm Jason Lessandrini. I'm the Assistant Vice President for Wellstar Health System in Georgia. Hi, I'm Katie Sheldon, and I am from OSF St. Francis and also Children's Hospital of Illinois. I'm Adira Holkauer. I'm the Director of the Bioethics Consultation Service at Montefiore Medical Center in Bronx, New York. Hi, I'm Kate Mulgin. I am a full-time clinical ethicist at Wellstar Health System here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Trevor Bibbler. I am the Bioethics Program Director at Houston Methodist Hospital, and I'm also an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Thomas Cunningham. Uh, I am the Director of Bioethics at Kaiser Permanente West Los Angeles Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. I'm Margot Eves. I'm from the Cleveland Clinic. Um, I am the Director of the Clinical Ethics Immersion Program, a staff ethicist, and I direct the Research Ethics Consultation Service. I'm Claire Horner from Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, my name is Christy Horsberg. I am a staff ethicist at Cleveland Clinic. What do you think makes an excellent clinical ethicist? So I, I've worked with, with people in the field and published a, a little bit on this topic, and, and I like to think of it at a pretty high level in terms of the four domains of practice, and that's the language we use in, in the publication I'm thinking about from the Journal of Clinical Ethics. And those, to me, are ethics consultation, education, scholarship, and then what we call leadership um, or administrative leadership. I think an excellent clinical ethicist in today's environment where you're often asked to do a lot of things, we don't have a lot of hierarchy where there are, for example, entry-level ethicists and then three levels above and then up to like a VP of ethics. I think because of that common structure, an excellent ethicist has to be competent to do good work across all four domains. It doesn't mean you're spending equal time on them. It doesn't mean you're equally competent across all of them, but it means that you can, in each of those arenas, you can you can lead in the boardroom at your hospital. You can lead in, in the committee rooms that you're working in. You can do some research to some extent. You can do consultation, a lot of it, right? Uh, and you can educate. You can educate, you know, for example, in an undergraduate classroom setting, in a graduate classroom setting, or at the unit-based level for a provider. So the competency across those four domains is, I think, the essence of excellence. So I'll frame it a little a little bit by saying that we have a fellowship program, and I've thought about professional identity construction, pedagogical um, commitments, and so on, with this orienting idea of, well, what do you need to do to become a competent ethicist, and then what do you need to do to actually be pro- proficient? And for us, we take a competent ethicist as being able to do ethics consultations at our institution. But that's actually not the whole of the fellowship. Then we give them lots of time to get to the point where we feel, oh, okay, apply to any clinical ethics job. You're not just doing well here. We feel like you could go anywhere. So when I've thought about this, I think there's lots of characteristics that are extremely important for a clinical ethicist. But the two that I just can't get around, and I don't think anybody could be a clinical ethicist without, is being able to ask good questions and then authentically care about the answers that come from those questions. If you don't have that critical ability to listen and ask questions, and then be invested in the answer, I don't really see anybody as being able to do clinical ethics without that. I think that's an interesting question, and it's slightly related to some of the work that the group that I led during the pre-conference really focused on in a slightly more peripheral way. But the question that we were trying to figure out is, in terms of a fellowship program, if you're trying to standardize what the curriculum should be, 
how do you do that? And I think key to that question that we kept coming back to is, well, how do you actually, how do we train people to be good at clinical ethics? Like what, what does that look like? And one of the things that I think we kept coming back to as a group is that you can, there's a lot of things that you can teach, right? You can teach, uh, the knowledge of the ethical principles, you can teach the process skills, you can teach uh, sort of how to be more understanding or aware of how the healthcare system works. Obviously, there's going to be variation from institution to institution, but generally speaking, who are the people that you would need to engage with? How might you go about that? You can teach people how to be good at or better at educating others about ethics. So there, there are all of these things that we can teach, but it seemed to me that people kept coming back to this idea that there are maybe some things that we can't teach. And those might, in fact, be the qualities within a person that separate someone from sort of being proficient at doing ethics to being a good clinical ethicist. Uh, and I think, I think that those are, are more of sort of the, the qualities of who a person is. And, and I wonder if what that means is that for people to be really excellent at doing clinical ethics work, for them to be able to and nail it, right, that there has to be some underlying level of empathy, um, compassion for others, patience, um, tolerance and understanding, this sort of the ability to perspective take. And I know that there's a lot of work about, you know, how maybe we can improve that, how maybe we can improve um, someone's aptitude for compassion, things like that. But I think that if I were to really have to, you know, be pressed to to commit to something, I would th I would think that it has a lot to do with that. I think good ethics is a result of a process that can be um, replicated over and over, not necessarily with the same outcome for every patient, but the attention to the fact that we have to go through the steps, because that's what differentiates us from somebody who walks into the room and says. Oh, my gut says no dialysis for this patient over objection. Like that there is that. And my gut might say that. Sometimes I get a call and I say, I have a pretty firm idea of like pretty solid idea how this is going to turn out, but I have to go through my process. And that is what makes us, I think that dedication and that patience, I think makes it for a good clinical ethicist. Uh, so I, I think there are three, all of them are necessary, but none of them are sufficient, though together I think they, they might be. The first one is uh, you, you have to be really good at thinking and you have to, you have to know how moral arguments proceed. I, I don't think it's merely a matter of reaching consensus because I don't think uh, reaching consensus has anything to do with morality. Uh, it, at a minimum guarantees that you're going to get the wrong answer. Uh, <laughs> and, and so you, you have to be able to think clearly about a difficult issue and be confident in arriving at a conclusion. And there, there might be different ways of doing that, but you, you've got to have one. Uh, the next is that you, you've got to be an effective communicator. Philosophers, I think, have a hard time making the transition to clinical ethics because the, the practice of philosophy, at least dialectically, is so contentious. I, I think they have a hard time um, uh, taking down the heat a little bit and focusing that on what matters, which is not necessarily the, the theoretical argument, but how it's going to be used in that specific context. Uh, so you have to be very good at that. And then you also have to 
understand the political implications of any recommendation that you give, not only for your own service, but also for uh, for the hospital and for the patients. And you have to be good at navigating those personal relationships. I think you have to have empathy to start. Um, and I do think there is tremendous value in having innate or um, developed abilities at conflict resolution. You have to be able to see all the different perspectives and then see some solutions to problems. So I think that's incredibly important. Um, I, in my own practice, have witnessed clinical ethicists who understand ethics and ethics theory, but have a very challenging time translating that to real human beings in real cases. An excellent clinical ethicist is someone who's going to have a whole host of skills when it comes to, of course, understanding ethical issues and how they're distinct from other kinds of issues and where the overlap is in terms of medicine and law and policy. But you also need to have that relational component. You need to have that uh, emotional component in terms of uh, empathy and knowing how and when to partner with a multidisciplinary team. Having a good sense of what are the different narratives I'm hearing and in what ways might those narratives uh, be skewed or biased or problematic, right? And how might multiple narratives also be true? Um, and whose narrative is being prioritized in terms of when we think about narratives about disability, priority is often not given to the person with the disability. And that's a problem. And so being attuned to that, I think, is a way in which our field can grow. I mean, two really came to mind. The first was empathy. I think you have to actually care about people um, to be able to do this. And the second is uh, mediation, um, just the ability to talk to people from all sides of an issue, being able to look at all sides of an issue and help resolve the conflict. You know, it's it's not really often that we can come in and say, okay, clearly here's the right side, here's the wrong side. It's really navigating values and goals and perspectives, and it requires a unique skill set. I think intuitively you want to help people. I mean, at its core, in order to be able to be sustainable in this or in this world and in this field, you want to get some value and some meaning out of helping people. So I think that's a trait that sometimes you can't really train. You either have it or you don't. And I think that is certainly core. Being tenacious as well is also important. Um, you're going to get turned away a lot and from even once you're hired within an organization, from leaders within that organization of, well, ethics is no help. This isn't helpful for me at all. You've got to figure out how to speak their language um, as well. Other things that make, I think, a good clinical ethicist strong communication skills. So being able to articulate things that other people have a really hard time articulating. And in order to be able to do that, you have to have great active listening skills. Really hear what people are telling you and try and tease out some of the values that they're they're not necessarily identifying explicitly, but they are talking around to help them come to a solution. Do you think that there's a skill that clinical ethicists need that maybe a lot of them don't have at this point? Maybe something you've heard at the conference or something you've been thinking about that would that would make clinical ethicists better if they only had this one skill? I think something ethicists in today's environment need to be better at is saying no to doing a wide array and amount of work and in the same voice, negotiating for and securing adequate resources to meet the needs, which requires identifying and explaining the needs. My feeling about ethics in, in the current moment is that, or clinical ethics, is that there's a lot of need that is unidentified because the work to identify it is difficult and time-consuming. And 
some of us are not capable of doing it either because of the time or because we don't have the competencies of evaluating that. And I think that that's a significant problem in the current environment. And that's something we need to be able to tell the people who employ us, we've got to learn what our needs are. And you have an obligation to the patients, family members, and providers in your institution to at least have a plan to meet those needs with you know, sufficient resources. I'm not even talking over-resourcing. I think um, most people in ethics, if we understood the needs, would be characterized as working in a resource-poor environment with, with inadequate resources by a pretty significant margin. So you asked about skill set, not education. So I'll, I'll answer that question, but there are two. I, I think it, it takes a certain personality to do this work. Just because you have the background, the training experience, doesn't mean you're good at this work. I, I think humility is probably the biggest piece that you need. Uh, that you're not going to fix everything. You can't solve everything. And sometimes, honestly, if you try to solve it really hard, that in and of itself is going to make you fail. If you focus on going in and getting the DNR, you're setting yourself up for failure because you've already defined your metric for success. If you don't get that DNR, you fail. Where if you think about helping people talk to each other as your metric for success, whether you get the, whether they agree to a DNR or not is not really I mean, it's not that it's irrelevant, but it's not the main focus, right? So I, I think humility is a big one. And I think being able to step back and look at the bigger picture, not feel the need to speak all the time, which is one of my personal <laughs> faux pas, but just being able to sit and be and be quiet, especially when you're in, in that conversation with the, the clinicians and the family and the patient and just having that presence of being calming. So as a clinical ethicist, what what's the best part of your job? There are so many good parts about being a clinical ethicist. I think the best part is the privileged position that we're in to be invited into patient stories and be invited to be at the bedside at what is such a difficult moment for patients and families and have the ability to hopefully make a difference for the better. I think it's a privilege that we don't think about very often. Sometimes we think of it as a burden. Sometimes it's just a day-to-day part of our lives, but it really is a privilege to be able to talk to them and hear their stories and help them work through whatever it is they're going through. People. People. Every every time. It's not every day because I'm not on service every day. But when I'm on service, I get to interact with a lot of people. And it's people who care. Whether it's people who are going through a hard time or people who are having a joy, it's people who care and people who do engage with you and mostly appreciate that, or at least if they don't appreciate the actual recommendations that you make, because sometimes that's that's accurate. They understand um, where it's coming from, and hopefully we make up situations a little easier for people. For me, it's definitely problem solving, feeling like I'm helping people, and rather whether or not I'm doing it in the law and through consultations I'm providing. Uh, for legal issues or for um, ethics issues, it's knowing that you're a part of the solution is really rewarding for me. The best part of my job is that any given day I can work work on policy with you know senior leaders in the entire health system. I can be at a bedside helping a family member or a patient or a provider. I can work on an, an academic product. Uh, so the best part of my job is being able to shift across those things. Um, you know, sometimes I can't control that. You get an ethics consult, you got to go take a consult. But for the most part, I have some autonomy in the work I do in my environment and I can go and 
maintain interest in the work I'm doing in a fun and productive way. Yeah, there there are two answers, Tyler. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll say it in a story. So we just had a team meeting. Uh, I think you guys both know this about me. So I'm an administrator now. That's what I am, uh, for good and for bad. <laughs> and I, I said in the team meeting, man, uh, I feel like I've lost my purpose. And everybody kept asking, like, well, what do you mean? I was like, I don't see patience anymore. Like, zero. I have zero. And I see them when I walk through the hospital. But I don't see patients at the bedside. And I sort of feel like there's this vacuum or this hole, right, that miss, that's missing. Um, and I, so, so I started talking with the team and we were bouncing ideas like, how can I re-engage with patients? And I think that's the beautiful thing about being a clinical ethicist is the sort of engagement that you have with patients. It's, it's very nice to engage with the clinicians. I, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but there's something magical or wonderful engaging with patients and families and, and sort of helping them come to resolution or resolving an uncertainty they, they may have or the team may have. And it's sort of that personal connection you've had. Um, if you, you, you'll bear with me, I have this fascinating story. There was a case I got, this is before I was at Wellstar. This woman had a, she had a massive infection on her lungs. There was a lot of story about her family wanted her to have it uh, taken out. They were going to have to, do, you know, a bunch of stuff was going to have to happen. So every time the surgeons would show up, she'd swat them away. And the surgeons were like, what are you talking about? And so she, they come up, they talk to her about the procedure. She'd swat them away, swat them away. So they asked the family, what do you want to do? And, and they were like, cut, cut it out, you know, take them, cut them out, do, do everything you need to. And she, so they came up the day before surgery. <clears throat> she did it again. They put mittens on her so that she couldn't. And then one of the surgeons was like, oh, I'm really uncomfortable about this. So they called the ethics consultation service and like, should we do this? She's swatting us away. So I go up there, right, have a conversation with the patient. I've talked with the family. I talked with the clinical team. We all get in the room together and we're having this conversation. And one of the things that ended up happening is this patient had been in the hospital for 60, 90 days and hadn't talked to her family because she was trait. So um, I had persuaded the clinical team to allow the speech pathologist to come in and deflate her cuff and let her vocalize over the tra- over the ventilator. Uh, and it was the first time, like, I'm sitting in the room. It's the first time she's talked to her kids. And her kids, like, start bawling uncontrollably. And then they stop, the whole thing stops, and they turn, and they're, she, 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 did, she did not have capacity. She was delirious. And her kids turn, and they're like, we shouldn't do this to her. So go down the path. She ends up going to hospice. So um, one of the nurses says to me, I think we should get a card for the family. And I was like, well, okay, I'll buy a card at the gift shop downstairs. I don't know why I got designated to buy the card, but I was like, fine, I'll, I'll buy the card. I brought it up to the floor and went around, put it on there, and I said, I'll come back at the end of the day. You guys sign the card, and then I'll, I'll get it somehow to the family. So I come back up at the end of the day, and no one had signed the card. I was like, what the hell? So... I went around and asked them, I'm like, hey, maybe you're busy. You know, can you just put your name on this card? They're like, no, 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 we're not going to sign it. And I was like, what do you mean you're not going to sign it? And, and they all said, um, if we sign it, we have to acknowledge she's dead. And I was like, oh, wow. And and she said, she. they said she left alive, so she's still sort of alive in our head. So the family had found out we were getting this card for him. And now I'm like, well, damn, what am I going to say? Like, am I going to fake write everybody's name in this card? So I ended up writing this, um, I wrote this letter to the family afterwards. So the, <clears throat> the daughter, um, she calls me and she asked me to come to the funeral. And I was like, one, I was questioning the boundaries of it. 
And then she said, would you mind if we put the letter in the program at the funeral? And I was like, you know, my appetite goes on. I'm like, oh my God, did I cross boundaries or whatever? But I think that gets back to my sort of point of like, that's what you can do as a clinical ethicist, right? Like you can help people resolve these things, these challenges, and really impact people's lives and the people who get left behind if it's an end of life situation. For more information about today's episode, show notes and links to articles and topics discussed, please head over to bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Goldenstall for all the podcast-related artwork and Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here. for you you don't have emotional sort of capacity to hold that so like you, you like it mm-hmm. em- other people's emotions don't affect you at all is that right that's true yeah so i'm a i'm a high functioning sociopath <laughs> i don't i do not experience human emotion in the same way that everyone else does so instead of being a receptacle i'm like a like a colander like a sieve it just flows right <laughs> through me